Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. It is so good to worship with you this morning. Um, thanks for joining us, especially if you're new. I want to thank you for joining us and coming out to join us for worship this morning. My name is Bill Rydell. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, one other announcement we had, just a little bit of church family news. We had two members um, who got married last night. Um, um, Seth McKinney and Ansley Bolin, and so they are now Seth and Ansley McKinney. Um, so the, it's exciting whenever we have stuff to celebrate within the church, and um, it was fun. I got to be a part of it. So it was a Redemption Hill wedding that happened here in D.C. Um, now I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right into what is in front of us for the day. Well, Father, we thank you for the chance to be able to sing together and hear your word read and proclaimed, to be able to share the Lord's Supper in a little bit, to be able to come together and worship today. I'm thankful for the chance to celebrate together, to grieve together, and that, that you've given us your body, the church. And so Lord Jesus, as we open your word today, we pray that you would help us to see you more clearly. Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts to, to soften us, Open our eyes to be able to see something freshly. We pray that in all of this, we would have our hearts drawn to our Lord and King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in a series in the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible, you can open it with me to John chapter 12. Um, that is where we'll jump in today. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen, and we should have some on the book table or the info table in the back, and you can grab one. It's our gift to you today. Um, as we've been walking through the Gospel of John, we just got back into this this fall after a, an extended series over the summer as I was on sabbatical, and, and as we're getting back in, we're in the second half of the book of John, which is the first half shows a lot of the ministry of Jesus and the miraculous things and the power of Jesus on display. And now the second half of the book of John shows us the pathway directly to the cross. And so that's where we find ourselves today, which is why today we are headed into what is often called the triumphal entry. Um, this is a weird time of year to get into the triumphal entry together. <laughs> Like, that's, it, I, as I was looking at it, it's like, it's funny because we just had the fall equinox. Usually this is in the vernal equinox in the springtime because this is what we usually hit on. It's certainly proclaimed or referenced on Palm Sunday leading into Holy Week. Um, but as we walk through John, I, my hope is today that we will, of course, reference this again when we get to Palm Sunday. My hope is that having it outside of the context of Palm Sunday might make it so that we catch different nuances and different aspects of the text as we look at this together today. And so the big thing that we see today is that there's, these, there's Jewish people who are following Jesus, the, the resistance of religious leaders, which we've seen over and over again. And also, though, we see some Greeks that come into the mix and are part of this story, and they, there's this amazing point where they simply say, we wish to see Jesus. 
And that's my hope today, that as we open this, the text together, as we read this together, that we would see Jesus for who he is. And that's why we're here today. Those of you who are members of the church or those are who are Christians and, and have, have been walking with Jesus for a long time, my hope is that you would see Jesus today and, and that God's word would show you something of Jesus that strikes you freshly. If you're not a Christian and you've come and joined us today, I'm so glad that you're here. And the reason we come together as a church every Sunday is because we want to get a better view of who Jesus is. This is what we're all about. And so as he enters into Jerusalem, we're going to read the text, and this is what's in front of us. My hope is that we'll see Jesus and that none of us today would leave here unchanged. And so Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from death to life. He brought him back from the dead after he was dead and in a grave for four days. They had, he had been anointed at Bethany by Lazarus' sister, Mary, and, and so that was what we looked at last week, and it says that after, the next day after he was anointed is where we begin. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but, Jesus was, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowds went out to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went to told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the invitation to us today is come and see Jesus. There's four aspects of who he is that we're going to look at and draw out of the text as we see these come in front of us. And so as we look at that, as we see who Jesus is today, we see first that he is the one true king, that he's the one true king. And so this scene, I love that it gives a little detail, right? The, the disciples didn't understand any of this until later on after Jesus had been glorified. And all of a sudden, they remembered what had been written about him and what, was, and what had happened. But you can imagine this because the, this was the night before they were at a feast, they were at a party. Um, I know that some of you were at the wedding last night, and so you understand what it is to wake up early after a feast. <laughs> so they get up in the morning, and, they, and as they do, they, they start to go, and Jesus is going to Jerusalem. This isn't odd. Jesus was in and out of Jerusalem all the time. But as he goes into Jerusalem, this time was different. They brought him a donkey, and he rode in on a donkey. That hadn't happened before. 
Crowds of people came out to meet him and they were waving palm branches around and celebrating as he came in. That had definitely not happened before. And so, so they didn't put all these pieces together until later, but, but for us, I think it'll help to understand what the people were quoting and crying out to Jesus to be able to really understand what, what was going on in this passage. So whenever we see the Old Testament quoted or alluded to in the New Testament, it's best for us to stop and before we get too far, to, to go back into the context of that passage so we can understand what was happening as it was quoted. And that's true here. Now, palm branches, there's a historic reference here, too, that, that palm branches were associated with Judea in particular and with Jewish victories. And so when Simon the Maccabee drove Syria from Jerusalem two centuries before this, he was celebrated as he came into the city by the waving of palm branches. And so this was, this was, it was kind of a little bit of a nationalistic symbol for the Israelites. And so Jesus says he's welcomed in, and they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. There is a major statement being made. They're saying that he is the King. And, and the, now understand the context of these Psalms too. They, they're quoting Psalm 118. This was part of the Hillel that, that was quoted and sung. Um, remember, this is Passover week as well. So this is, this is the Feast of Passover. And these Psalms, 113 to 118, were sung by the people every morning in, during the Feast of Passover. And so this was fresh on people's minds. The same way that, that if you're around our church, there's songs that are regularly part of the rotation for us that, that we sing together. And so if somebody starts breaking into, you know, this morning, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God, those of you who have been around that song and have sung that song, it starts to just come out of you. You can keep singing the song, right? That our, we have a tendency to be able to remember music even better than we can remember most things. And so here the people are singing these every morning coming into this. This was part of the tradition and culture of the people anyway. And as they, start, as they see Jesus come in, they go right to Psalm 118 and start singing this to, to him. You need to understand where Jesus is coming into the city too. He enters here from the east of the city. Now, the, the way that Jerusalem is built, that if, if you've ever had the, the chance to be there, it's amazing how close everything is. That when you stand on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is way down at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, you are looking across the Kidron Valley immediately at the east wall of the temple complex. It's right there. You can't miss it. And it's, it feels like it's not a stone's throw away. It's much farther, but it feels like it because it's a big wall. There's a gate on that east side that is called the Golden Gate that has been sealed since around, the, the, I think 1100 is when, when it was sealed up under Islam, Islamic occupation of that place. And, but that was historically, the expectation was that Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would come and was prophesied to come and save God's people, was going to enter into Jerusalem by that gate. So as Jesus came around from Bethany, around the Mount of Olives, and down into the Kidron Valley, he entered directly into the temple complex, directly into the court of Gentiles, which was the outermost court of the temple, it, through that eastern gate. And so that's where he was welcomed. So the, the symbolism here is important. And this, is, this quotes Psalm 118. And so let's go back and see Psalm 118 to be able to understand fully what the people are singing. It says in Psalm 118, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. 
I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. So this psalm is, is being quoted. This is a song of a, a Davidic king, a king in the line of King David, who was entering the city in victory, saying, open up this gate to me so that I can go in and give thanks to the Lord. The righteous will come through this gate, and God has saved me. This is the same gate that Jesus is entering in on the donkey. And it goes on to say, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. That is Hosanna. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So this is the song that the people are singing as Jesus comes in. This is where, now it doesn't say, as John quotes it, even to the king of Israel, but you see that that's the context. And so the people are crying out to Jesus, like, this is it. Not just, I mean, when we quote, this is the day the Lord has made, there used to be like a praise chorus for that, right? Do you ever, you know, you ever sing that? Devin, you, can, you, should, you should bring that back in. <laughs> So this, we, we could sing, this is the day the Lord has made, let's rejoice and be glad in it. But usually when we think about that, we think about like today, right? The sun has come up, it's a beautiful day, it is, we have entered into the season of autumn, thanks be to God, because we can go outside without being drenched in sweat. And so we could look at this day and say, hey, this is the day God has made for us. We can rejoice. Let's be excited. Let's, let's make the most of the day that we have. But that, that's, not, that's more limited than what I think that this psalm is declaring here. This is a moment of victory. It's saying this is the time. The day of the Lord has come to bringing deliverance to his people. And so as the people are crying this out to Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's in this context of saying, this is it. We are in the day of victory. This is the time of our victory, the time of our salvation. The king has arrived here in Jerusalem. This is a major statement. You can understand why this would have gotten people upset, why religious leaders would have been upset, and why very quickly, within a few days, they get Rome upset about this. And Pilate asks Jesus explicitly, are you the king of the Jews? It's a political statement. And so this is the way Jesus was welcomed as king. There's definitely a nationalistic hope that he's the messianic liberator that's going to overthrow Rome. And we see that all over the place. Earlier in John, that's why he slipped away. If you remember, he, he fed the 5,000 and then he had to withdraw and he escaped because there were, there were people that were trying to make him their king. And so these political messianic hopes, were, were, they were just saturating the people at this time. And in that, what we see in what Jesus continues to do here is he continues to defy expectations as the one true king. He's not just the king of Israel who's entering into Jerusalem. He's not just the king of the Jewish people who's entering into Jerusalem. He didn't come primarily to bring victory over Rome. You see, Jesus, as God in flesh, Came, as, came to fulfill what we needed most deeply. That means what we needed most deeply in his coming was not 
a skillful politician, and it was not a military general. And still, we place those expectations on Jesus. Across the political spectrum, people will leverage Jesus when it's convenient to make their points, to quote scripture when it's convenient to back up their platforms and policies. And right now, in my view, the most dangerous um, threat to the witness of the church in our time is the intermarriage and intermingling of Christianity and politics into nationalistic zeal. Now, let me be clear on this. Because if you go on social media or read what Christians write, you'll hear people saying the greatest threat to Christianity or the greatest threat to the gospel. Have you ever heard that language? So it's like, this is the greatest threat to the gospel. There is no threat to the gospel. Not now, not ages past, not ever in the future. If the gospel is the good news of who God is and what he has done and is doing and will do, it's not like there's a committee of the Trinity in the heavens right now calling a crisis meeting and saying, we don't know what to do with those American Christians. <laughs> we don't know what to do with this administration or that administration. This is getting out of hand. This is a threat. We better, we better do something. No, 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 no. Jesus is the one true king. He's already conquered death with life. There is, there is nothing that can stop what he has said he will do. You see, this is why the ascension of Jesus is so important. We talk about his death and his resurrection a lot, and we, often we forget about his ascension. Like, Jesus did not just resuscitate and then go back to the grave. He ascended to the heavens where he now is seated at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling over all things. And he promises that he's going to return, and when he does, things will be made right and things will be renewed. This place will be restored. There is no threat to Jesus' kingship or reign. We need to realize that and trust that. But there are threats to our witness to who he is. And so, yes, there are threats to the witness of the church, things that do damage to our ability to reflect the goodness and beauty and glory of the gospel, and things that do damage to our credibility to be able to represent our, our king as his ambassadors. And the intermingling, uh, the tagging of Jesus into American partisanship, I believe is the greatest one we face right now. Jesus was overthrowing expectations even as he came in. And it, it shows up because he, they, they, here it's quoted, uh, Zechariah 9 is also quoted because what happened, people are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is it. This is our Messiah. This is the anointed one. This is the king coming into Jerusalem. We are waving our nationalistic symbol of the palm branches of saying this is it. He is bringing victory to God's people to restore us and overthrow Rome. He's being ushered in to the, to the golden gate directly into the temple where they're saying like the, the psalm goes on to say, let's sacrifice to God right now. Go straight to the altar. And as they're saying that, you would expect that king to arrive in a certain way, right? You would expect that king to arrive with grandeur and glory and style. And he rides in on a donkey. Now, I don't want to minimize 
the grandeur of donkeys. <laughs> if any of you are donkey advocates, don't, don't come at me later on in emails. But this is, this is important. He comes in not on a war horse, not in chariots, but on a donkey. And in Zechariah 9, it told us this. In, in verses 9 and 10, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Like this is what Zechariah was saying. What, was, what God was saying through Zechariah is that when the king comes, he's coming in on a donkey, not a sign of, of victory over in war, but a sign of peace because he's bringing salvation. That his reign is not limited to a, to a particular place on earth, but extends over everything from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus came in not to fulfill the, the, the nationalistic or, or ethnocentric expectations of the people that welcomed him, but he came as the true king going into the city to bring true peace that would extend to all people. And it says, again, in Psalm 118, there's this proclamation of go straight up to the altar. Like, God has done this, so he has made his light to shine upon us, so bind the sacrifice with cords. Let's go straight to the altar. We are going to sacrifice and thanks to God. And so people were crying out to Je for Jesus to make his way to the altar. And remember, this is the same place, the same mountain, where Isaac was bound by Abraham, but a ram was provided by God. This is the same place where sacrifices were burned and the Holy of Holies sat with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and, and the altar where sacrifices were made consistently. And now we're in the Passover week where people would sacrifice lambs to remember what happened in Egypt and would, would have that Passover meal together remembering God's salvation. But what they could not comprehend is that Jesus, when he arrived in Jerusalem, did not bring a sacrifice to the altar, but he himself was the sacrifice to, that would once and for all end the need for ongoing sacrifice of animals. This is the glory that we see in the image of God's throne in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, where John, this same author, is brought into the presence of God, up into the heavens, and he sees the 24 elders and the angels crying out and worshiping God, and they said to him, look, look at the center. He said, what is going on? He doesn't understand. Look at the center, because you will see the lion of Judah, the root of David, this is the king, the Messiah, the one who was promised. And when John says, when I turned and I looked, what I saw was a lamb that looked as though it had been slain. Like when we, and we're going to sing later, when we sing to the lion and the lamb, we need to understand that this is not like, this isn't two gods. This isn't different persons of the Trinity. This is Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He is the Root of David. He is the Messiah. But our expectations of the, what that will look like versus the reality that he is the ultimate sacrifice for us and that the rest of Revelation refers to him as the Lamb. 
He turned power upside down. He conquered our greatest enemy, which is death itself. But he did it with his own death. And John will show us over and over from here through the end of this gospel that the glory of Jesus is the cross. That that his glory came through death and that his ultimate sacrifice was his ultimate victory. So he's the one true king. The second characteristic we see is that he's the one with the power of life. Why did the crowd go out to meet Jesus? It's not a trick question, it's right in the text. They went out because they had heard that he raised Lazarus from the dead. So the the disciples didn't understand these things, but they remembered these things had been written to them about him and and when they had been done to him. and, And the crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. And so that's the reason the crowd went out to meet him. They, they had heard that he did this sign. And so the people came out to see Jesus because he had performed an incredible miracle and he conquered death and brought somebody back to life. This is something none of us have seen done. This was not like an operating table moment where somebody was, was physically or biologically dead for a few minutes and was resuscitated. This was a man whose body was left in a tomb for four days. It was the time that rabbis at the time believed that the soul would depart from the body permanently. And so the crowds came out because the word spread about Jesus, that he had the power over death to bring life. Now, what I love about this is that it wasn't Jesus going and spreading that word. He had dinner with Lazarus the night before. It says they were reclining at the table together. Martha was serving dinner. Mary anointed him, and Judas freaked out about the anointing. That's the moment that kind of broke him, where he was like, this guy's got to go. But the crowd goes out and continued to bear witness. The root word for bear witness there is the same word that we use for the word martyr. And so this is a martyr bears testimony with their life and into death for what they believe. And here the people saw what Jesus did and were bearing testimony about it. And so, and so people saw Lazarus raised to life. Of course they told people about it, right? If we saw it happen, we'd do the same thing. Because like, we wouldn't be able to believe in our own eyes. And be like, we can go talk to this guy. He's still there. Like the Pharisees wanted to kill Lazarus at this point, but he was still there for people to go and meet and talk to and to hear about this. And, and, and so this is, people went out and they were like, we can't hold this in. We've got to go tell people about it. This is, they had to tell them the good news of what they had seen. In the church, we have a word for that, for telling people good news. What is it? All right. Emily's with me. <laughs> It's evangelism, but that simply means telling people good news. The evangel is Latin for the gospel, the good news, and so you make that into a verb. It's gospeling people. It's telling people about it. We proclaim the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done, but we kind of freak out when we hear the the word evangelism, right? Like, I think the reason none of you said it right now is you thought I might make you do it. (laughs) Why are we afraid? What makes it so hard? I think for a lot of people who claim Christ, it's just off the radar. It's something we might be afraid of. Like You have moments where it's, it's like you think you should live your life, or maybe you do live your life functionally as if there's no impact of Christ on it, and then eventually you're like, well, it's kind of weird to then sit down with a friend and say, you know, can I tell you about this thing that I'm into? 
like, like you're going to try to sell them Amway or something. <laughs> I mean, think about the things that you're an evangelist for. Last Sunday, I was an evangelist for my football team, and they got embarrassed on national television. <laughs> so God rebuked me. <laughs> but we tell people about where our allegiances lie when it comes to sports, wear the gear, and you know, if I wasn't preaching it now and trying to represent a more important thing, I might be wearing a Bears jersey today. If they ever get to the Super Bowl, I will wear it on that Sunday, but that is a very slim chance anytime soon. <laughs> we do it with shows and movies. Like, so we're evangelists about the shows and movies we like to see. It happens, and things that come through in waves, like Ted Lasso or Severance, or right now what's hilarious is that in our church we have enough Lord of the Rings nerds that, that there's like this deep divide that's happening in Redemption Hill Church over whether the new Amazon series is entertainment that we should watch or whether it's trash that is violating Tolkien. <laughs> but either way, you're evangelizing your views on it. Like we, we evangelize for books that we've read and I see people posting on their Instagram that I've read this book and different books they're reading over time. We, we evangelize for restaurants. You, you go have a good meal at a restaurant, and you want to tell people, like, hey, this place, this, you got to go eat here. This coffee shop, you got to get there. It's, it's my favorite in the city. We definitely evangelize about political perspectives and ideology. To the point now where on both sides of the aisle, everything that happens, every vote that happens is always the most important in your lifetime. But I'm convinced that the average American Christian never gets to lead somebody to faith in Jesus in their lifetime. Because we think about evangelism as a special gift that only a few people have. The crowd didn't hold back because they thought somebody else might be gifted to talk about Lazarus being raised from the dead. They saw something and couldn't hold it in. So they spread into the streets and people came out to come and see Jesus because of what he had done. Like, we don't have to be the next Billy Graham. You're probably not. But you do have the best news in the world. Dorothy Sayers, a writer, an English writer, said that there are three humiliations of Christ. The first is that he came as a baby and took on flesh. The second is that he went to the cross and died a shameful death. The third is that he entrusted his message to the church. Because we are the instrument God uses to spread his good news. He could send the angels to declare it and tell the whole world in, in deafening glory what he's done. But if you're a Christian, he's chosen you to carry around the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ to the world, even though it, it's something beyond what we can handle. And that's why we gather together on Sundays, as we, we come here, like this is, not, this is not the main thing that the church does. It's an important thing that the church does, but to go back to a sports analogy, like this is at best the huddle. Like this is where we come together to be, to be reminded of what we're doing out on the field and what we're doing together and how the, the, the pieces work together and to be inspired to go out and actually, actually execute what we're called to when we leave this place. 
And so as we come here, my hope, that's where I say my hope today, is that every one of us would see Jesus with fresh eyes and that none of us would leave here unchanged. Because I want us to be leave here and remember, we have the best news in the world. This guy conquered death. And we can go tell people about it. So he is the one true king. He's the one with the power of life. Third, Jesus is the one who welcomes all people. And so the response of the religious leaders to the Pharisees look at one another and say, ah, we are gaining nothing here. <laughs> like, this is getting worse. And you see, the whole world has gone after him. Now, they're saying the whole world because in their minds, the whole world is just the people in Jerusalem. But I love that John here does something a little bit tricky. He shows us, he uses the words of the Pharisees here and the religious leaders, like, the whole world's going after him. And John says, they had no idea. Because when he came in, to the city walls, the first people that wanted to see him were a bunch of Greek people. Now, we don't know if this was, Greek can mean a lot of things in the New Testament. It can just mean the nations, everyone that's not Jewish. It can mean people who are Greek-speaking Jews from the diaspora that are in the city from all over. We see that in Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, and what, what follows, that in the early church, there was a division in the church, not between people who were totally different in ethnicity, but instead were Jewish people that, that, that some of them were Greek-speaking or Hellenized culturally, and others were, were, were Aramaic-speaking, and there was a divide in the church that way. So it could be that these were Greek-speaking Jews who were a part of the the Passover feast in the temple. It could be Greek converts to Judaism, people who had, had converted fully into Judaism, or it could be God-fearers, people like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, who was a centurion who worshiped the one true God and wanted to meet with Peter, or the Ethiopian man that Philip interacts with who, had been, who was coming from Jerusalem and was reading the prophet Isaiah as he, on his journey. So all of those could be encompassed here. We don't know, but, but whatever the case, in those options, what we do know is that Jesus welcomed all people into his presence. That this is, who, whatever, wherever these people fall on that list, there was still a barrier for them. And we've, we've seen this before, that if, if the way that the temple was built was a series of smaller courts, that the outer court was called the court of the Gentiles, that if you were not Jewish, you could not go any further, but you could come into the court of the Gentiles to worship, that within that was the court of women, where women and children could, who were Jewish could come. Within that was the court of Israel, or the court of men, where Jewish men could come and worship. Inside of that was the altar in the holy place where only the priesthood could come. And beyond that was the holy of holies or the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And only the high priest could enter the holy of holies on the day of atonement, on Yom Kippur, to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people. And so the temple was built with these layers of complexity and access and this is why in, in John chapter 2, Jesus, when he went into the temple in John 2, he started flipping tables over and saying, how have you turned my father's house of prayer for all people into a den of thieves? What he was saying is that the, the people had filled the court of the Gentiles with sacrifices and, and trinkets, things to buy in order for the people to come and worship. But by doing that, they had made it so that non-Jewish people couldn't even have space to worship God. And so now Jesus enters into the city through the Golden Gate, and the first place he stepped into through that gate was inside of the court of, of the Gentiles. And so he's on a donkey in the court of the Gentiles, and Greek people were the first ones to see him and say, say to the disciples, hey, we wish to see Jesus. 
Philip and Andrew went to Jesus, and, and Jesus, but what we see here is Jesus welcomes all people. The first people that had access to them were the ones who were given the least access to the temple. And so it's an incredible contrast here that you have teachers of the law, religious experts, leaders that, that have the most knowledge of God's word, the most access to different layers and areas of the temple, would have been the ones that we would think would recognize God's work most quickly and clearly, and they're the ones that don't recognize Messiah when he enters in from the gate that Messiah was called, told to enter in from, riding on a donkey, on a colt of a donkey, just like Zechariah had said, that they miss it and want to stand against him, but Greeks who have the least access to the temple saw that Jesus had power over death, heard about what he had done, and said, can we meet him? We just want to see this Jesus. Jesus didn't just come to save, well, as he says, the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. He didn't just come to save a small group that was terribly insular. He came for all people. Again, to the place where, where Abraham bound Isaac to fulfill what Abraham was promised, that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so Jesus was, came and it defied expectations of what people thought the Messiah would be. It defied expectations over what he would accomplish as he came with the power of life over death. And it defied who they thought should be part of it as he welcomed all people into his presence and actually met with those who were most outside first. This is another important corrective for us. I don't know about you, maybe this is, this is just my sinful broken heart, but there are people who I don't think are probably ever going to turn to Jesus, and that's good. There's people that I don't think have things right, that I think God should judge. Like the disciples, when they were going through Samaria, and they, there was this racial tension, there was all kinds of tension between these people groups, and the disciples were like, uh, Jesus, that village turned us out. Can, can we call down fire to burn them up? And Jesus says, no. One way to be sure that we've made God into our image and likeness, rather than allowing ourselves to be shaped in his image and likeness, is that we come to a place where we believe that God hates all those we hate. That, that God restricts all those who we think are beyond saving from ever coming into his presence. God has a way of upending our categories. Back to the need to be able to tell people about the one who has the power of life. You will never pray for someone you hate. You will never share God's love with someone you despise. Jesus turns everything upside down and welcomes all people to his presence. All right, fourth, and the final of these, is Jesus is the one whose death brings life. So this is what he says, the hour has come, Jesus said. It's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what is the glory of the Son of Man? He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Remember, this is when Jesus says this in John, when it's truly, truly, he's saying, amen, amen. He's saying, this is something you can count on. This is truth. 
that cannot be changed. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is a pretty clear illustration, right? Now, even if you're not into farming or plants, which I'm not, but I still get this. Um, I had this brilliant idea. We have a tree box in front of our house, like a lot of houses on Capitol Hill, and, and it's just a mess. Like there's trash in it all the time. It's a lot of exposed tree roots. I tried to have the city come and trim the tree, and I got a very angry call from somebody from uh, whatever the department is that you have to call with 311, and he said that, um, that this majestic American elm will not be trimmed back. <laughs> just because it's interfering with your crepe myrtle. Okay. <laughs> but the tree box is just a mess. And so I had this idea, because I saw it somewhere, that, uh, like, of, of just scattering some, uh, some wildflower seeds into the tree box, so, because then it would at least be pretty and full of wildflowers. And you've seen that in a few others. The, the problem is that I've, I had the seeds arrive from Amazon, <laughs> and uh, there's not enough dirt there and so I've got to now put dirt in the tree box for this to happen. And so what that means is that those, that packet of wildflower seeds has sat in my house as clutter on a shelf for, I don't know, it was before summer. <laughs> um, whenever it was, months and months and months. Those seeds, while sitting on a shelf, preserved in plastic, are never going to sprout into anything. Nothing. Right now they're plastic seeds, or not plastic seeds, they're seeds encased in, in, in plastic that has a picture of what the wildflowers might look like. But if they're ever going to be effective, they're going to have to be put into soil, the seed itself will die, and from that it germinates, the seed is destroyed, and through that destruction, beauty and life springs. So what Jesus is saying here is that this is his glory, that he did not come, God incarnate, to be preserved and put on a shelf, that he came knowing that the destruction of his flesh, his death, was the only way that, that it could be multiplied into beauty and glory and life for us. And, and so then he, what, what gets hard about this, because we can hear that about Jesus, right? And if you know, if you know how the story goes, you know that, that his death didn't, he didn't stay dead, but was raised to life, ascended to heaven, and is returning, like we've talked about. And so hearing this story, we're able to see, like, well, of course, we have 2,000 years of church history to see how his death brought beauty and life. And so we can see that when we restrict it to Jesus. But do you see what he goes to next? So whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's not a call we want to hear. It's nice to hear about the resurrection and ascension parts. Like, this is where Paul says in Philippians 3, like, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And we, we can hear that and read that and go, yes and amen. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. And we, can, we sing that and we want that and we want resurrection life because we, that's, we know that's something beautiful. But in the meantime, 
I think the way we think about it is that our faith is something we want to, we just need a mustard seed's worth of faith, right? And so we want to keep that mustard seed's worth of faith and package it up and secure it so that it doesn't get damaged. We want to jump from our lives from the life we're living now into resurrected life and just go from one to the other. We want to hear the trumpet sound and Jesus to return and I never have to experience death because that's scary. And where this really comes out is that when Jesus says, you've got to take up your cross daily and follow me, he's saying, not just that you need to die to actually have a fruitful life, but, but you also, you're going to need to suffer along the way. See, we have bought into, and most of us, if we're honest, have kind of a circular view on life and on our lives and what ought to happen and what does happen, that there's good things that happen and then bad things that happen, and then it just cycles. That's why when somebody's going through a hard time, we have a tendency to say, just hang on, it's going to get better. I hate to be the guy that asks the question, but what if it doesn't? It's harder to come to somebody and say, hang on, we don't know where God's taking you and it might get worse. And then when good things happen, usually, if I don't know, maybe this is just me again, but it's hard not to have a little bit of hesitancy to actually enjoy good things. Because you're wondering, like, when's the other shoe going to drop? This is too good to be true. We know that, oh, this can't last forever. Just ride the wave. Well, that circular thinking is Simba theology. <laughs> That's not biblical theology. Biblical theology, there's a guy, an author named Paul Miller that describes this as the J-curve. That all over scripture, what we see is that life goes down a path of suffering into death. And that in that valley of the shadow of, of the valley of the shadow of death, that's when God can move and act, and only God has the power to bring life. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, listen, a seed's got to die for there to be beauty in life. It has, to be, it has to be destroyed so that the germination can begin and life springs forth. He says, this is what, I, what he came to do was he came and he told his disciples over and over, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and on the third day I'll be raised. When he was flipping tables over in the temple, he said to them, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And the religious, religious leaders went, well, this temple took 40 years to build. And he's like, ah, but, it, but what Jesus calls us to then, it, this isn't just him. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my servant, this is what you're signing up for. Resurrected life is better than life without resurrection, but you can't get to resurrected life without going the pathward down into death so that God can raise you. And that means in life now that we need to come to a point where we actually believe that, and trust that what God has for us is greater than what we can accomplish on our own. Be willing to give ourselves up. This is what it means to follow Jesus, is to say, wherever this takes me, I'm going to follow this path. I'm going to give up the things that I cling to for security and comfort and glory and recognition. I'm going to give those things up and embrace the path of Jesus, lowering myself, not riding in on war horses, but but to walking in with a donkey, trusting what he says here, that where I am, there will my servant be also, and if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We need to get to a point where, that, where Paul says that in Philippians 3, I, I long to know Christ and the power of the resurrection. We, we stop it there because that's where we're comfortable, but he goes on to say, and to share in his sufferings. When's the last time you prayed that? Lord, I want to know the power of Jesus in the resurrection, and I want to share in his sufferings. 
Paul knew because of the weakness in his flesh and the thorn that God had given him, that there was some suffering he'd endured, but he knew that in the midst of his suffering, that's where he could hear the voice of Jesus most clearly. That's where he saw the power of God at work most clearly. Church, church, if we want to see revival, if we want to see the, the fruit of the beauty of life in Christ spread through the city like wildflowers, it's going to mean that we as individuals lead the way by laying ourselves down and following the path of Jesus with the hope of glory to come. And this is our call today. We can't just skip suffering and death. So we all came here today. That's a, I know that's not a cheery place to end. <laughs> but we came here today wanting to see Jesus. And he has a tendency to turn over our categories. Wanting to see who he is. And we see here that he is the one true king, that he's the one with the power of life. He's the one that welcomes all people and the one whose death brings life for each one of us. And the question that comes to us today is are we going to be more like the religious leaders who cared more about their image and comfort than the truth? Or will we follow Jesus' call to walk with him through whatever suffering God leads us through, laying down our lives themselves and trusting that God raises the dead to glory? I want to see beautiful things happen in our church and through the city. Let's join Jesus together. If you're not a Christian, this is who Jesus is and what he calls us to. It's not easy. It's costly. But it's the pathway to God's presence and glory. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to trust this. This is the belief that you call us to in Christ. It's, it's hard when we see this passage and Jesus coming into a place where the crowds are singing to him and declaring him their king and, and welcoming him in and knowing that, that this is the beginning of his walk and path to his death. Would you help us to see Jesus for who he really is? In all of his glory, in all of his beauty, would you help us to trust that his pathway is the one that we're called to, but it's the one that can bring us into your presence where we'll see the fruit of life. Lord, would you help us trust enough to be able to lay ourselves down, to follow Christ wherever you might lead us, to be able to, to be willing to realize the, the incredible news that we carry and not to be shy about it, to realize that to follow Christ is to declare that he is our king and not to get that confused with other kingdoms. Lord, I pray that you would do a beautiful work in, our, in each of our lives and in our church, in our city, as your people are willing to lay themselves down knowing that as the seed dies, that it brings beauty and life and bears much fruit. And so would you move in our hearts today, we pray. Amen.